0: just want to say hello. I'm so thankful to get to be with you all this morning. It's usually not an opportunity that I am able to engage. If you don't know me, um, you wouldn't know this, but I direct children's ministries uh, for the Gospel tab, and so I'm employed over at the Crestmont campus, typically teaching the little ones on Sunday morning. So this is an extra sweet pleasure for me to be able to be here with you all. And... We're going to get started. If you've been coming, you'll know that we have been studying the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, and I'm just going to read a quick overview for you. Thanks, John. <laughs> a quick overview of some of the historical things that have occurred in the Bible leading up to this point, Ezra and Nehemiah. And I'm just going to read this overview so I don't mess it up. God called Abraham and formed a nation from him called Israel. After Israel had been in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years, he brought them to the promised land. Eventually, the people's kings became wicked, and the people fell into idolatry as they oppressed the poor. After the prophets had warned them, God sent the people into exile in Babylon. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah takes place as the people returned from exile as God had promised. So in the last few weeks, if you've been with us, you would have heard some of these stories. And if you haven't been with us, a quick recap of Ezra and Nehemiah. There's three main leaders that are accounted for. It's Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. And they have done these different things to, one, bring the people back from Babylon, two, rebuild the temple of the Lord, and three, rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. Okay, and, it, and the movement that we're kind of going to be heading into and focusing on a little bit more is how they're attempting to reestablish the Israelite practice from the law that God had given years and years before, but they have fallen away from, and they're not familiar with that at all, okay? Um, before we get into that, I just wanted to give like, a quick intro to my other background. If you don't know me, you wouldn't know that I'm children's ministry director, but many people who do know me actually don't even know that I'm also a nurse. Well, they don't know that because I don't work in a hospital anymore, but I do keep my license current. And when I did work as a nurse, I worked in critical care. And one of the things that I needed to be certified for was advanced cardiac life support. And in this, it's kind of like when somebody is about to die... Uh, there's kind of protocols. So it's like we can create a set of circumstances around this person that are more favorable to them actually surviving this near death experience. There's certain medications that we can give, certain things we can do to intervene and revive somebody literally from death, right? And one time I had a patient as I was giving off report to the next nurse, they rapidly began to decline and I had to leave because my shift was over, but I left worried for this person, you know. And I came back the next week and learned that they had, in fact, died. And I was in such um, turmoil over this for a very long time because I just thought, what, what could have been done differently? What happened, you know? And I remember reaching out to one of my nurse mentors and saying, like, this is a scenario. What do you think about this thing? And she was like, you know, she basically said, you didn't do anything wrong. I would have done what you did. And you really just need to rest in the fact that people's days are written by God. Like, he ordains this. So even though as a nurse I had a role in t- taking part in bringing people back to life, like ultimately that is God's prerogative. Like, he alone has the power to establish the, the revival of a physical body. today we're going to talk about his power to establish the revival of our spirits. Okay? So um, there's a text here that we're going to be digging into in a minute. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 5 through 9. But before we get there, I wanted to set a little bit of the context for you, because earlier in Nehemiah 8, it tells you kind of what's going on, and that's what the handout is to help you reference. In Nehemiah 8, chapter 8, verse 2, it says... So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. Now, this um, first day of the seventh month, as it is said here, doesn't sound very significant, right? Um, But it was significant, and you'll find later, as we begin to read the passage, it gets rather confusing, and the confusion comes due to what this day was. Okay, so if you look at that paper you have there towards the bottom of the wheel side uh, where you see September towards the center below it you see number seven it says Tishri okay so the the Jewish calendar is actually different than our calendar because it I think is more lunar solar or something like it's a mix of things (laughs) I'm not scientific (laughs) but anyway um, it runs a little bit di- differently than ours. And so, in this seventh month that Ezra was talking about, on the first day, if you look towards the line of the seven, you see Feast of Trumpets. Okay? That was a feast that the Lord had declared in Leviticus. There's very little, actually, description of it in the Bible, so it's kind of hard to know what it was supposed to look like, really. But it's, it seems like it was supposed to be a day of celebration. And some people allude to the fact that the trumpet that is blown on this Feast of Trumpets Day was actually a ram's horn and was supposed to remind people of the ram that God used to deliver Isaac from death, okay? So there's this celebratory aspect linked to this feast day, okay? So it's on this feast day that Ezra has brought out the law and the people are about to hear it, okay? So Ezra, or sorry, Nehemiah. Ezra brought out the law, but we're in Nehemiah. (laughs) Nehemiah 8, verses 5 through 9 says this. I'm just going to read from the screen because I'm not sure if I have a different version. Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God. And all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, Joshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Khalida, Azariah, Jozebad, Hanan, and Paliah instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and teacher of the law, And the Levites, who were instructing the people, said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people have been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Okay. So, what we have here is the beginning of what looks like a revival, right? If we think about the components of what might go into a revival, repentance seems to be a key theme, right? And so the people are beginning to enter this repentance phase because while they've been living in ignorance for so long, now they're recognizing we have really, really messed up and we really deserve probably more than we received in terms of discipline, right? And so they're they're just broken. They're really torn by it. And so it seems strange to hear the leader say, no, stop weeping. We're going to rejoice today. In fact, they move on to say, we're going to eat and celebrate and just feast. Okay, so they kind of put an end to the repentance part here. And the only way that I could really think of it, like in an analogy form, would, would be to be as if we didn't know anything about the Word of God, and we found out on Easter that Jesus died for us, right? And so on Easter Sunday, which is the most wonderful day to celebrate, we'd be broken because it's like, wait, you died? Okay, so in that sense, it's kind of like, this is not a day for weeping. It's a day for rejoicing. We're going to keep that holy to the Lord, okay? And so that's part of what happened here. And um, the people actually get back to it. Um, They do go through this period of celebration But the very next day, they continue to read the law. And if you continue to read Nehemiah chapters 8, 9, and 10, you see what follows is they go back to repentance. They circle right back to it because they've been in the word of God. And they said, Lord, we really, really messed up. And our fathers really, really messed up. And so they go through this whole corporate confession and repentance. And it's very genuine, right? It's very heartfelt. All the emotions are there. And what it culminates in is a, like a declaration, like a resolution of what they, were, what they would do going forward. And so in Nehemiah chapter 10, verse 28, it says this. All who have knowledge and understanding join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God. So they made this solemn oath that they would observe and do all the commandments of God. Now, have you guys ever read the Old Testament? you read Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers? (laughs) Okay. There's a, a, I looked it up. I don't know if this is completely accurate, but it said 613 commands. That's a lot. And they promised. They're like, we're doing it all. We're going to keep all of this. We're on it, right? And have, have anybody here ever made a New Year's resolution? Yeah? Yeah? Did you fulfill it? No. No? Okay. So I read... <laughs> Hey listen, it's hard, but it's like you go into this new year and you're like hey I'm gonna make a change things are gonna be different going forward I can do better than this last year. I can do better than what's behind me And this is what I am going to do right And you have all this like woo going into it And honestly, I couldn't even tell you if I've ever made a new year's resolution if I did I forgot it promptly <laughs> Because I don't even remember Okay, but that's kind of what's happening here. And actually, if, if you notice on that wheel, it doesn't, it's in the bottom right corner of that page, it says that maybe, perhaps not at that time, but currently, this seventh month of the Jewish calendar is actually their new year. So it seems appropriate that at this point in time, they're making these declarations and saying things are going to be different going forward. We will obey all 613 commands, right? So before we get into seeing how they do, we're going to go back to a little bit of their history and see what happened before this. It kind of sets a little bit of a track record. Back in Exodus chapter 24, verses 1 through 9, when God first gave the law, it says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, you are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord. The others must come near, must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote down everything the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said we will obey. Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up. Okay. Similar, right? They hear the word of the Lord, all these commands, and they're undaunted by it, right? Because what they're feeling in the moment is genuine. Like, we know this is a good God. We know that what he's done in our lives, we really, really do want to do these things and follow closely with him, right? And so their hearts are aligned with him in this. And even in, like, some of the, if you notice, there's prophetic pictures there, the blood being sprinkled over them, this idea of being covered by sacrifice, you know? Um, Even in that moment, they're thinking, we can attain to this law. It's in our hearts to attain to this law of God, right? Right? to do all the right things but if you're familiar with the story what happened immediately after Moses went back up on the mountain to meet with God he's in this cloud of God's presence and 40 days go by while he's up on the mountain so I can just kind of imagine the scenario you know the people are down at the bottom day 14 it's like where is he he's still up there Day 25, what is going on? We really need this guy Moses because God doesn't meet with us in the same way. He's gone. Day 35, it's like real Dallas setting it. Can you imagine all the conversations? He's never coming back, right? Like, we just made all these promises. Perhaps we already failed. Can you imagine the doubt? Like, perhaps we already failed and he's abandoned us, right? I think about myself in these places where it's like, Failure comes in so easily. It creeps in, especially doubt, you know. Um, or, or even places where it's like, I'm, I've been on this emotional high. Something wonderful happened at church. I can't believe it. It was so beautiful. And then the very next day, something terrible happens, and, like, all the glory of the day before is completely gone, right? <laughs> um, the last time I was scheduled to preach, I felt like God had really given me a word, like, with favor on it. I was so excited to preach it. And at the time, I had, there'd been a lot of sickness going around, around people, around, (laughs) nearby. (laughs) And I was starting like, I feel like my throat's really dry. Oh my goodness, I'm supposed to preach in three days. I know the favor of God is on this word, but I just don't, what if I don't make it? What if I can't give this word? And all this doubt. And then I just heard the Lord say, like, this way to practice repentance, like turn and believe. Like, Just turn away from that doubt and believe. And that was fine. You know? <laughs> um, but that's kind of what revival is. It's just, if it was broken down into this small thing, it's turn and believe. Turn away from the thing that's pulling you away. Yeah. And believe the word of the Lord. Repent from your unbelief. Believe the word of the Lord. And this is what happened with the people. They, they just... Got lost in doubt. And so within 40 days, they're worshiping idols. And this comes out, right? 40 days, guys. Most people can actually make it into their New Year's resolution for 40 days. So back to Nehemiah, same story, you guys. Um... If you read into chapter 13 of Nehemiah, the same type of thing happens. Um, Some of the specific things they said they would do, they were not doing. We won't ignore the Lord's temple. We will not work on the Sabbath. These very specific things, they were a strength. And it happened within a matter of years for them, you know. And I can relate to this. I don't know about you guys, but it's like, no matter how hard I try, sometimes I can't, you just can't will yourself to change, (laughs) you know. It's like, it's just not in me, you know? Um, so, I don't know, maybe their fervor peter, petered out. Maybe like the reality of some of the hardships and oppositions that they were facing set, set in. And that's what pulled them away from some of their obedience practices. Perhaps they just got discouraged. You know, perhaps they felt like they weren't meeting the Lord in the way they thought they would. I remember how when they built the temple, the glory of God did not come and there was weeping for some people. Um, perhaps they were discouraged and thinking, I, is, I, I'm just not meeting the Lord the way I thought I would in obedience. But um, it brings me back to this idea of New Year's resolutions. Okay? And I looked up this study and it said that of the people who make New Year's resolutions, 9% of them are able to complete the resolution. And then it said these things. People cited these are reasons for failure. One, they had unrealistic goals. Two, they didn't keep track of their progress. Three, they forgot about their resolutions. And four, they made too many resolutions. And if I think about the Israelites, I mean, goodness. These are unrealistic goals, right? There were too many. There were 613, at least, according to what I read. Perhaps they forgot about them. Um, You know, it's this very thing. It's like, why did God do this? Why did God give them this law that they couldn't possibly fulfill, right? Why did he give them this way of living that they couldn't possibly live up to? And the whole purpose was to point out very clearly, you can't do this. There's, there's no amount of ability within you to live perfectly or to obey perfectly or to change your heart, you know? Um, so, so it created this extra desire for a savior, right? Like we're, we're, we're just unable to follow this, Lord. We need this perfect sacrifice that you keep alluding to every time we make sacrifices. We need this for ourselves. And so fast forward to Jesus the perfect sacrifice. When he comes. Um, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through 7, Jesus says some really hard things. He doesn't give this same old law. In fact, he said, The old law that you're familiar with, those 613 rules, I didn't come to break them off. I came to fulfill them for you. I am the one. Mm-hmm. I will do that for you. But it, he also gave them the heart of those laws and he said this is the way you should live and he said some really hard things in verse 20 to 22 of chapter 5 he said you heard do not murder but i say don't be angry 539 do not resist the one who is evil if he slaps you on the left cheek turn your right 544 love your enemies 619, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth. 625, don't be anxious about your life, about your food or your clothing. 712, treat others as you want to be treated. Uh, These feel just as impossible, if not more impossible, right? Because in some ways we do have the ability to control our actions. You know, in the Old Testament law, don't touch a dead thing. That seems relatively easy to do compared to love your enemy. Ooh. Or don't murder. That feels relatively easy to do, but like don't be angry? That's hard. Right? So Jesus fulfilled this old law in, in the Old Testament perfectly. He lived it perfectly, but he gave this new law that was still really hard. And we're going, how, how are we going to can we live up to this? Can we do this? And we automatically know that we can, right? But sometimes we try. We, ch- we definitely try, right? We want to honor the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. And so it's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change. I'm going to do better than I did yesterday, right? And we might even ask the Lord to help us, right? Right? Um, I found some interesting things as I was reading it back in those Old Testaments in passages about the feasts and something that just kept recurring really stood out to me. And I thought, I think really this is why God is speaking. And if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see when God sets up all those feasts that are on that wheel. They all have different parameters and such. But in Exodus chapter 20, he sets up Sabbath and he says, six days you'll do your work. On the seventh day you will rest. That day is holy to the Lord. The seventh month, that month Tishri, it's marked by three feasts. There's a lot of Sabbathing in that month. There's a lot of rest from work. In Leviticus 25, God set up that the land rests in the seventh year. Every seven years, they weren't to plant the land. He said the abundance of the sixth year would be enough for not working and resting in the seventh year. Think of relying on God for that. It's amazing. And then he said, after seven rest years, so if the rest year comes every seven years, after seven of those, 49 to 50 years, there's going to be the, 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 day, the year of Jubilee, the year of freedom, where people who were in captivity or servitude would be released. And again, there was rest for the land. And while I was reading here in this seventh month, ten days after this Feast of Trumpets that we're reading about in Nehemiah 8, ten days after that comes the Day of Atonement. Nehemiah 8 doesn't mention this day, but this day was especially important, right? Because it drew the mind to, we need a sacrifice. We need a sacrifice for our sins. And on this day, this is what God said. I think it's Leviticus twenty-three, twenty-six through 31. The Lord said to Moses, The tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Do not do any work on that day, because it is the day of atonement. When atonement is made for you before the Lord your God, you shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for generations to come. Wherever you live, it is a day of Sabbath rest for you. No less than three times, I think it's more than that, he said, don't do any work on this day. He even said that one who works on that day will be destroyed. So if you think about it, even in the small ways where we feel like we're still working for God's approval or for atonement, it's so counter to what he taught from the very beginning. You cannot work on the day where I cover your sins. I do this. In Exodus 31:13, he said, "Tell the Israelites above all, keep my Sabbaths, the sign between me and you, generation after generation, to keep the knowledge alive that I am the God who makes you holy. It is His work and our rest that transforms us." John, you can come play. I just thought this was so beautiful. I thought it was so clear. Like this concept of how we strive, you know, how we strive for even the good things that God desires for us. He desires it too. But it's not in the striving that we find those things. Um, God was teaching me this as I was preparing this sermon because, you know, I love to do the legwork on teaching. I love to do all the research and dig in and try and find the connections and all that. It's so fun for me, but it's work. And partway through this week, I was realizing just what a busy week it was and all of the commitments that I had. And it felt like my time to prepare was just dissolving away, you know. And a friend texted me and she said, hey, someone invited me to go to this conference in Pittsburgh. It's, a, it's called the I Am Conference. And um, I just wanted to know if you would come with me. And she sent me this little clip of a video to promo this conference. And I opened it up, and it was this woman saying, you know what is on my heart? She said, what's on my heart is this story about Mary and Martha and how Martha's working and working. And Jesus said, but the one thing you need is to be with me. Right? Mary has chosen better to be with me. And I I texted my friend back, and I said, I'm thinking perhaps God is telling me that I'm Martha in my preparations, you know, that he's saying like, quit working so hard on this. The one thing you need is to come and be with me. And when I texted her that back, she said, you know, I had prayed who to ask and he put you on my mind. And she said, here's a little bit more information. And um, the, the the next slide that she sent me to promo this event, it basically said, are you looking for revival and renewal? It's found in Jesus. And I was like, that's my sermon. <laughs> I already know that. Um, in Matthew 11:28 28 through 30, this is what Jesus says. Sorry, did I say? El- yeah, chapter 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the first thing that stood out to me here is just, this first step is come to me, you know. In these first two Old Testament accounts, it was the word of God that brought life to people when Jesus came, God said, and the word was made flesh. And now Jesus is saying, come to me. There's an element of surrender here. All you who are burdened, yes. give me your burdens. And I will give you rest. Give me your work. I'll take it. But then he said something else. He said, my yoke is easy. Well, if you know what a yoke is, it's, it's an instrument of labor. Kind of interesting, right? I'll take your burden and I'll give you my yoke, but my yoke is light. And if you look up what a yoke is, it's, you know, it's this wooden cross piece sort of, but it's meant to join like two oxen together to work the fields. And so Jesus is saying, come to me, hitch yourself to me. We'll do this work together. It will not be hard for you. I will give you rest for your soul. So what is God saying to you? Maybe he wants to highlight areas where it's like, this work is heavy. And he wants to join you in it and make it lighter. Perhaps he wants to open your eyes to places that he's just asking for surrender. You know, sometimes we hold things that we don't even realize we're keeping from him. And he, he just might be saying, if you could just just surrender that to me, I'll meet you there. Whatever that looks like. It's always harder than it sounds. Maybe he just wants to open your eyes. That he is always with you. In every heart space. So... I hope this was encouraging to you, and I think John is closing us out with a word.